Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you delivered me back safely. Thank you, Father, that you, your hand and your care was evident in this body in my absence and that we all know, Father, that it is uh, Christ who leads his church, not men, and that he will do it through whomever he needs and has, and, and uh, we all are servants. And so we glory in that, Father. We thank you that the strength, is bigger, uh, the strength of the church is greater than us and bigger than us, and, and it's all to your glory. I thank you, Father, that uh, we were able to minister in two different places in the world on the same weekend. And Father, I also thank you for your word, its power in our lives, its truth, the plumb line that sets our feet on the right path and helps us to weather the storms of so many false teachers who might come from time to time. And uh, because of the word, Father, we are able to avoid the traps that they bring. And may it continue to be that for us, Father. May we continue to devote our lives to it in such a way that we'll be ready each and every time that the enemy may try to stumble us. Today, Father, in your word, I pray that the teaching... As I prepared it, would be according to your will, that even as I deliver it, Father, you would be delivering the right words into the ears of those who hear. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to go back into chapter 5 only briefly. There were a few verses we didn't finish with because I I said last time that they formed a good introduction into the story of Noah in chapter 6. So we'll do that, but then, of course, we'll proceed quickly from there into chapter 6 proper. So let's set the stage again. We'll start in chapter 5, verse 28. Read with me down to chapter 5, verse 32. And let's read the introduction to Noah. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah And he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, if you'll set your mind back a couple weeks when we did chapter 5, we went through the genealogies, we looked at how there was this this story built into the genealogy. It wasn't merely a, a list of names and ages. One of the things we learned last time was that there is a line of the seed. There is one particular birth line that God is working through to fulfill his promises concerning the seed, or ultimately what it means, of course, is the Messiah. And that particular line God is focused on protecting and developing out, and each man in that line becomes a man of faith as God provides. And apart from that line of the seed right now, the rest of what is around them, all the other brothers and so on, all the other family are left to fade into history. They don't have a prominent role in the Scriptures. You could argue, and I tend to favor this view, that none of them are believers. That at this time and in this age, during this particular dispensation, God is not bringing a message of faith to the world and He's not actively calling men to Himself apart from the line of the seed. That will become more evident, I think, when you look at what we're about to study in chapter 6. The state of the world, in other words, as we arrive at the moment of the flood. But for now, let's look at what we do see in these last verses of chapter 5. You have Methuselah, from last time, becoming the father of Lamech. And you remember, he's the man who lived longer than any other man in the record of the Scripture. And he lived longer not only than his own father, but also longer than his own son. And he dies in the year the flood comes, in keeping with his name. When he dies, it shall come. Lamech, his son, is introduced here just long enough to connect the dots 
in this line of the seed between Methuselah and Lamech's famous son, Noah. Lamech's call to fame is merely the fact that he is Noah's father. You can see that Moses believes Lamech's son is really the one we should focus our attention on. His name gets mentioned very quickly. And this is because, of course, Genesis now moves toward Noah's story. Lamech lives 777 years, which is in itself a very interesting number, and not coincidental, of course. He, in a sense, brings to conclusion, seven being a perfect number in completion, he brings to conclusion the antediluvian line of men. After Lamech, there is no one other than Noah. Noah is the only one who moves through the flood and emerges on the other side. So Lamech becomes the the final man born prior to the flood who does not make it through the flood. He is the completion of that segment of history, if you will, of that portion of the genealogies of the Messiah. And as you remember from two weeks ago, I mentioned that every man who is credited in Scripture for being in the line of the seed, or said another way, every believer in the time of Noah, in the time of Lamech and Methuselah, have all either been raptured in the case of Enoch, died in the case of all the patriarchs, or taken through the flood safely in the case of Noah. There is no believing member of the line of the seed who perishes in the flood. In keeping with what we hear out of Scripture, that God knows how to preserve the righteous even as he brings judgment on the unrighteous. And so the boy Noah, his name means comfort or rest. You hear his father saying, I call him Noah because this one will give us rest from our work. The name Noah means rest. What's interesting, though, is in the Hebrew, Hebrew spelling of his name, if you reverse the letters of his name, if you read his name backwards in Hebrew, it means grace. And we will come to that a little later in chapter 6. Now look at Lamech's statement for a moment concerning the boy. The reason he named him Noah, he says, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now is Noah going to do this? Does Noah actually accomplish these things that he accredits his boy with accomplishing? For example, will Noah put an end to our work? Not so far. Will he put an end to the curse that God pronounced on the earth because of Adam's sin? Did he end the curse? Most certainly not. So how do we make sense of Lamech's statement if what he says about Noah is not actually or not literally true? Well, first, let's give room for the possibility that Lamech is making exactly the same mistake concerning his son that Eve made concerning Cain. As she had received this promise that she would be the one to give birth to the seed who would conquer Satan, she got a little full of herself from what we studied back in chapter 4. And she made the wrong assumption that her first child would be the Messiah. And so she names him Cain, only later to realize that, no, Cain isn't the one after all. In like measure, perhaps Lamech had a revelation of sorts from God to know that he would be giving birth to a very special man. But he jumped to the conclusion that that meant he was getting the Messiah. The one who would take us from our rest and stop the toil that came with the curse. And he, if if that is true, then of course he went too far. And he misnamed his son in that respect. But Lamech does offer a correct prophetic picture of not Noah but of who Noah himself pictures that being Christ. So that in a roundabout way, by saying Noah will do these things, he is simply assigning to Noah the picture of Christ in the way Christ himself does give us rest from our work, the work of salvation, in other words. Rest from any need to work a salvation that is instead given to us. 
And of course, Messiah will one day reign on earth. Christ will return. And when he does, eventually in the new heavens and new earth, he brings a complete end to the curse. So now having inadvertently established his son as a picture of Messiah's saving work, we see Noah in the flood story begin in chapter 6. So go to chapter 6 now and verse 1 through 4. We read, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also He also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Well, these verses taken together as a single passage provoke a great deal of discussion, conjecture, debate. But I think we can resolve those questions for the most part here. I think the text is, is actually quite clear. Let's just simply look at what the Bible itself says. Moses here begins the story of Noah and the flood. Now, we know that's what's coming, but he hasn't addressed that yet. He's just introducing the characters and the times and the circumstances that bring us to the flood. And now moves to talking about the daughters of men as a backstory for the flood. Do you see the interesting transition? There's not a woman mentioned in chapter 5. Because in traditional ways, the patriarchs and the men of the family were the ones that were tracked. But he begins chapter 6 in a contrast, talking about the daughters of men as a backdrop for the flood. What's he talking about? Well, he gives us this intriguing passage that describes intermarriage between, quote, daughters of men and sons of God. Now, there's debate here, as you might know, concerning what he's saying, what he's describing. But as I said, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. First, I want you to notice that whatever Moses is describing here in verses 1 and 2, his point is this is notable and this is unusual. He's not mentioning it just so he can tell us, oh, by the way, women and men were getting married. Moses, I already got that way back in chapter 2. Right? There's nothing notable about this if, if it were simply a discussion of how men and women were marrying in that day. That wouldn't fit the context because Moses clearly wants us to know this is happening because it's so different, it's so unusual, and it's one of the bases for the flood. Well, the flood itself can't be caused because of marriage, not in the simple sense of it. Furthermore, the terms that he uses here in Hebrew, specifically, these are not the terms you would use of a typical man-woman marriage. He says, for example, daughters of men. Well, that is literally the case. That's easy enough to understand, but it's still an odd way to say it. Would you agree? Daughters of men, as if to specify daughters from some other source, you know, as as in contrast to some other source. But then to make it even clearer, he says the daughters were attracting the attention of sons of God, Ben Elohim in the Hebrew, Ben Elohim, Ben sons, Elohim, God, sons of God. Now, the Bible never refers to natural human sons with this term. It doesn't occur all that often in Scripture, actually, only here and in Job. So the only way to understand it here properly is to go look at how it's used in Job by comparison and see how it's used there. And when Ben Elohim, when that term is used in Job, it's always, in both cases, it's used to describe angels. In the context of Job, the term is being used clearly and without any dispute 
to refer to angels. So it is a term, the sons of God, when that term is used, refers to the created angels that God made. And interestingly, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when the elders of Israel came to the Hebrew and they said, we have to make this, turn this into Greek, and they came to this verse, they chose to translate Ben Elohim into the Greek word for angels. So even the scholars of the Old Testament in Jesus' day, in the time shortly before Jesus arrived when the Septuagint was translated, they themselves were interpreting and understanding this term to mean angels. So here's what the term, here's what the verse is saying. Angels were coming to earth, noticing that women were attractive and chose to make them their wives. An angel-woman relationship. Now, if that Given that that's happening, we can immediately conclude something about the angels. These were not good angels, for doing this is clearly against God's will. These must have been the fallen or demonic angels, the ones we call demons. So you have demons here mating with human women in some sense. Jude gives us a confirmation of this when he recounts this event in his letter. Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Since they, the angels, in the same way as these, as those in Sodom and Gomorrah, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude, to sum up what Jude says, Jude said that there were angels who did not keep their proper domain. They abandoned their proper home or abode. They are now being kept in eternal bonds under darkness, waiting for the great judgment day, because they were just like the ones in Sodom and Gomorrah in the sense that they, went in, they indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh. And now they are being exhibited as an example to the, to the rest of the angelic realm for what happens when you engage in this kind of behavior. God is holding them in a way that serves as testimony to the rest of the demonic realm. If you try this again, this is what will happen to you. So Jude says that it was, again, demons seeking after strange flesh. So as we look at the text in chapter 6 again, we find an interesting parallel to chapter 3, the chapter in which woman and man fall in the garden. In Genesis 3, we're told that woman saw the fruit was good and took it. In Genesis 6-2, the Hebrew is almost exactly the same. The demon realm looks and sees that women are beautiful and take them. So what women did to the fruit, angels are now doing or demons are now doing to the women. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of sin. Now the question becomes, well, there's probably several questions among all that we could ask, but, but one of the questions becomes, why would the demonic realm want to do this? Why out of nowhere do they choose to start taking daughters of men? Well, the answer brings us back to the theme of the book of Genesis, for that matter. The theme being how God develops the seed, the promised Messiah, out of a line of men so that he may come and redeem us from our sin. The demons understand this plan, at least to some extent. And so, of course, does their master, Satan. They understand that God has promised to crush them with this coming Messiah, and they know that this Messiah, this seed, will come through woman. Woman is the incubator. Woman will be the source for their destruction. And so the seed coming through woman gives rise to this plan among the demonic realm. If they were in some way 
able to corrupt, distort, and do away with the line of Messiah, then they've effectively put an end to God's plan. There, there can't be a birth of Messiah from the line of men if the line of men have been polluted by the introduction of angelic beings, the result being a corrupted, distorted kind of product, kind of human, who is no longer suitable for God in this plan. It is the case I've read that every Jewish girl growing up in Israel for centuries, for millennia, dreamed that they might be the one who had the blessing of birthing the Messiah. I guess maybe how girls dreamed of 75 years ago that they might be Miss America or today they dream they might be CEO or whatever it is that drives the dreams of girls today, right? That they had this thing that, you know, this idea that they would land the lottery, in a sense, by being the one God would choose to b- deliver the Messiah. Every Jewish girl wanted this. And so the demons begin to mate with women to corrupt the human race and the seed leading to Messiah so that if they are able to do so, God's plan would stop. Now, how could such of an unholy union even be possible? We remember from other passages of Scripture that that demons have the ability to appear as men, or angels for that matter, in such a form, in such a way that other humans are unable to determine that they're looking at an angel. Hebrews tells us that some have entertained angels and not known it. Abraham hosting men in his tent before the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, who later turn out to be angels. And they are sitting with him, eating with him. There's no apparent evidence in all of that 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 they would have been known as angels in the moment. They just appear like people, doing what people do. So if we can accept that demons or angels have the ability to imitate and counterfeit human flesh, so much so that other people can't tell the difference, then it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to, imagine, to, to see them doing what the Bible here describes them as doing, going into women in such a way that the women accept them as human men. And so the prospect of demons mating with women isn't impossible to accept, but what of the offspring? What does that lead to? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, and probably for good reason, but the passage does give us a description in verse 4. So in verse 4, the Bible calls these products the Nephilim. Now, in my Bible, it's capitalized. Probably the same is true in yours. That's because this is a Hebrew word for which we have no translation. That is the Hebrew. Nephilim is Hebrew. It is very similar to, in Hebrew, a word that means fallen ones or sinful ones. Maybe that's all it's intended to mean. But the Septuagint chose to translate this Hebrew word into Gigantes in Greek, which is where we get the word gigantic or giant from. So if gigantis means giant, that has led some to come to believe that these Nephilim were giants. But if we really go back, if the entomology is examined all the way back to the Hebrew, there's really no basis for that. The word in Hebrew doesn't mean giant. It was, a, it was because of the word they chose to put it into Greek that we ended up with that, in, with that view. There's nothing to suggest these people looked any different at all. In fact... It would have been an even greater danger if the offspring were indistinguishable from normal men, wouldn't it? I mean, if the whole point, from the demon's point of view, if their whole point was to infiltrate and corrupt and distort the the line of men and do so in such a way that it would spread and over time take over and there would no longer be any pure humans on earth anymore, everyone would eventually be like these corrupted Nephilim. Well, if that's your plan... Is it better that your children look gigantic and weird or just like everyone else? It would make more sense to assume that these 
men of renown of, of old had some special properties, perhaps. They were stronger, more virile, more strength in every respect, but not bizarrely weird in such a way that they would never have the chance to move throughout the culture. That would be my assumption. Now, there's nothing in Scripture to tell us one way or the other, so don't read too much into that. But it's one way to view it in any event. Now, text, the text of verse 4. There is a potentially confusing statement I want to clear up before we move further. Moses says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now, some think that what Moses is implying is that this intermarrying of men and, and demons continued even after the flood. They would even cite somewhere in Numbers, for example, in the story of Numbers, where the ten spies who come back after going into the land report back that they've seen the Nephilim. Well, let's get one thing straight. The report of the ten spies was a lie. Remember? These guys were trying to lie so that they could keep from having to go in because they were afraid of the Canaanites. So they made up the story that they saw Nephilim. The Nephilim were the men of renown, the men that you always heard about from the days before the flood, but no one's ever seen one. And so they say, hey, guess what we saw in there? Nephilim, we don't want to go in there. They weren't actually there. It was a lie. Secondly, the text in the the syntax of the Hebrew in, in that verse is the cause of our confusion here. Let me tell you what it's actually saying. If you read this in Hebrew, we find that the phrase afterward and afterward is connected to the second half of the sentence, not the first half of the sentence. He's not saying that the men of the Nephilim were there in those days and afterward those days. He's saying the men of the Nephilim were there in those days. And then afterward, this happened. Let me me read you what the Septuagint says, translated into English. Now, the giants were upon the earth in those days. Semicolon. And after that, when the sons of God were wont to go into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. So what he's saying is they came to earth. After that, they mated with women, and then they had children. That's the sense of the syntax in Hebrew. There's no suggestion here that they were there before the flood and after the flood. The whole point of the flood, or one one reason for the flood, is to destroy all these characters. And then, of course, Jude tells us they were locked, the angels themselves were locked up and kept for the day of judgment. So in verse 3, God says, His spirit shall not strive with men forever. The Hebrew word for strive is unique, making it difficult, I guess, to define. It only occurs here in the entire Bible. This is the only place this word appears in Hebrew. It probably means to remain with man or to keep his physical body alive. Remember, God is the breather who put his spirit into man, into Adam, and that joined spirit and flesh and made us alive. Flesh was not destined to perish until the curse. Then the curse made it a necessity. So God may be saying here that, All flesh is destined to die sooner or later. Maybe that's what he means. I don't intend for this flesh to live forever anyway. Maybe that's another way to say it. And now that it's being systematically corrupted by angels, I set a limit for the flesh of the day to 120 years. Or another way to say it is, in 120 years, all this flesh is going to be gone because of the corruption. Because I never intended it to last anyway. So after 120 years, God is going to put an end to all corrupted flesh on earth apart from those who find his favor. Now that becomes a countdown timer until the flood will strike the earth. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man 
to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Moses wants us to have a full understanding of why this flood occurs. And so he gives us the first reason, angels and women. Then he gives us a second reason, the sin of men. While the demonic realm was working to undermine God's plan, the sin of men, all on its own, was growing to such unsustainable levels that it necessitated this kind of dramatic response. I mean, think about it. There's never been anything like this. So we have to understand why it occurs by recognizing how unique the moment was and why it was necessitated. Here, Moses says the wickedness of men was great. Now, let me put this in context for you, because I think at this point we may be tempted to overlook what he's really saying. Men have always been sinful. The very first son of Adam killed his own brother. That's wickedness for you. You don't get much worse than that, really. God, at this stage, has not seen anything that hadn't already happened. So, when the world is said to be so wicked that it necessitates the flood, you have to ask yourself, well, what's different now that hasn't always been true since he started the world, at least since the fall? Well, from the time of Adam until the moment of the flood, what restrained sin in the world? God has not yet instituted government. God has not yet instituted the death penalty. God has not delivered his own law yet. The only thing governing man's sin in this age is his own conscience. God is ruling over men by relying on their conscience to check their own sin, to govern their own sin, to keep it in check to some degree. And now you see what that solution offers. There's a very interesting progression in Scripture as you move from Genesis into the Gospels, where it becomes obvious that God has constructed his timeline, the history of men, in such a way that we are forced to conclude there is no solution to sin apart from God's grace through the Messiah. And the way he's shown that, the way he's shown that progression is he shows man alone in the garden, free and without sin. Well, you see where that led. Then he shows man in the world with sin, but free in every other respect, left only to his own conscience. Well, we see where that's led. After the flood, he's going to introduce human government. And we'll see where that leads. After that, he introduces his own law, which then leads to more bad stuff, meaning more disobedience. He introduces a king, which only leads to more problems. There is no human solution to the sin of men. Only after the Messiah arrives and presents a solution of his own making can we see truly where we turn in addressing sin. So this is a stepping stone along that progression, showing us how men themselves are unable to address the problem they created in sin. Now, what is different about this moment, then, if it's not merely the fact that there is sin? Well, look at some of the words. Moses says man's internal thoughts and imagination were evil continually. The word for imagination there is yatsar in the, in the Hebrew. It's the same word used back in Genesis 2 when God creates man out of the dust. Create is yatsar. So here's the contrast. God creates man in good form. Man now, in turn, is sitting around all day long creating evil constantly. That's our product. The point here is that man's conscience is unable to restrain man's own sin. And so man now becomes entirely evil apart from the line through Seth that God is preserving. And at this stage, we reach the point where the sheer number of people, combined with the unrestrained nature of their sinfulness, 
has come to a level where God says, I can't accept this any longer. And Moses says God is sad and he is sorry or he regrets making man. Now, some English versions may even see God repented of making man. Now, whenever we see a description like this of God, let's understand it in light of all Scripture, in all that the Bible says about God. For example, we know in, in 1 Samuel, Scripture teaches clearly God does not change his mind, as Samuel says, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So we change our minds all the time. We do that because we learn something new. We had a thought, and then time passes, and some new information shows up, and then we change our mind because we have something new to consider, and it alters our understanding. God doesn't live in a, inside time. He lives outside of time. All that, would, that could be known, all that could happen is already in front of him. He knows it all already, even before he makes his first decision. So there's no need or way for him to change his mind because there's nothing new that's going to come along and alter his understanding. You, you, you see what I'm saying? So with no new input, there's no basis for him to make any new assessment or new, new thought. Everything is right from the beginning with God. So when Scripture says in verse 6 that God changed his mind, we have to understand that language in light of the whole Bible's counsel, to include the counsel that he does not change his mind. Well, in this case, then it becomes a language issue again. Moses says God was sorry he made man, but the sense of it, especially in light of Scripture, the sense of it in Hebrew is God was regretful for how his creation has deteriorated. He's sorry to see it happen. He's sorry to watch it happen. But that statement does not imply surprise over the circumstances. It is, or much less a changed attitude, it is simply a recognition that he is affected by sin. The reality of it, the presence of it, the magnitude of it, grieves his heart. He's not an automaton. He doesn't have no response to it. His response is he's regretful and sorry to watch it happen. But that doesn't mean God didn't plan for this moment, and it certainly doesn't mean he didn't already anticipate it. Now, in fact, notice verse 7. God is sorry that he made not only man, but look, land animals, creeping things, birds. Well, clearly, if his sorrow or his regret extends to those creatures as well, you can't turn and say, well, he's, he's sorry in the sense that he wishes he never had made them. These are not the problem. These animals are simply caught up in the, in the problem. He is simply grieved now and forced to act in response. So here's his response. Worldwide judgment that will blot out all these creatures. He's not going to blot out sea animals. Did you notice? They're not included in the judgment. What can you do on earth that kills everything but sea animals? Well, basically fill it with water. I mean, the, the solution is obvious from, that, from the point of view of what he's trying to accomplish. Why is he taking that approach? Why are sea animals, for example, not included? Well, God's response will eliminate all creatures that have kinefesh. Remember that? From chapter 1, as he went through the days of creation and he made each animal, there was a turning point in day 6. In day 6, something appeared in the text that had not previously been in the text. Kinefesh, the living soul. The animals and man share kinefesh, something that none of the other creatures, plants, fish, for example, did not have. Kinefesh becomes that distinction between those things who can give their lives and those things that can't. You notice in the law, you can sacrifice land animals, you can sacrifice birds. And of course, Christ himself was sacrificed. But you can't sacrifice a fish. 
there is a certain distinction God has established in his own creation in which certain animals have living lifeblood and can be sacrificial in some sense from the ones that cannot. It's those that he's removing from the earth. He's starting over with those who have kind of flesh. And as we progress now through the story of Noah, I want to alert you to something we're going to be watching as we go. We're going to be taking time along the way to examine prophetic clues that God has left behind in this story. This is one of my favorite stories of Scripture, the story of Noah. And in part because there is so much here that maybe you haven't seen before. There is so much below the surface of the story. And what's remarkable about it to me is the story of Noah is literal, historical fact from front to back. And we'll see that clearly as we go through the text. But in, the, in knowing that, it becomes all the more astonishing to find out that the way the story carries out, the way it actually took place, embedded all these pictures and clues of Jesus and of a coming future judgment. It shows, it testifies to the magnitude of God's sovereignty. He can create events on the world stage of this magnitude and yet construct all the details in such a way that they scream at us prophetically about future events. That's the God we serve. That's the power of God. These are going to be symbols. They're going to be pictures. They're going to be shadows. They're going to be other details taken from the account that point prophetically to a future moment. And I'm going to take moments along the way to show you where those are. And I want to show you the first one now. Moses opens the story of Noah by describing the times and the circumstances. We just covered all that, right? Demons with women, men's sin, run rampant in the world. All of these details are part of the backdrop to the flood. They're also prophetic pictures. Jesus says this about the end times in the Gospels. In Matthew 24, verse 37, and reading on, Jesus said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, Jesus tells us that his second coming will occur under times and circumstances that are just like the times and circumstances before the flood. So we now have an opportunity based on that testimony to take a close look at what was going on in the days before Noah and see what kind of parallels do we draw to the days that will occur right before Christ's second coming. Now, there are three ways that I see, at least three ways in which there are parallels, one of which Jesus himself gives here in the verses I just mentioned. But there are two other ways we can draw parallels as well from other scripture. First, we know that the days of Noah are marked by a hyperactivity of the demonic realm. Before the days of Noah, the demons existed, but they weren't marrying women. But in the days right before the flood, they take on this new hyperactive role. They become more aggressive and they insert themselves into the lives of men in a unique, visible way. In the days immediately before Jesus' return, the Bible in the book of Revelation describes a world in which the Antichrist has been revealed. A man who takes control politically of the world. But then in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, at three and a half years into the tribulation, he is killed. He dies. And for three days, his body is dead and the world mourns him. The world sees him dead. But then after three days, his body comes back to life. 
this Antichrist, his physical body returns to life. And the whole world is witness to this. And of course, as you can imagine, they go nuts. A man coming back from life? You've got to be kidding me. And they interpret that. They're taught to interpret that. To say this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. That's why we call him the Antichrist. Because the world sees him as Christ. And this miracle at the three and a half year point of tribulation is the defining moment in which he gains that title. Because of the resurrection. The source of his new bodily life, though, is actually Satan. The scriptures tell us that Satan indwells his body, this dead body, and brings it to life by his own power so that it appears as though he's been resurrected. But we can read in in other scripture, particularly in Isaiah, that the soul of the Antichrist actually descends to hell where it belongs and does not return. So the Antichrist is sort of taken on the old body like a puppet, as best we can understand it. It's alive, it appears to be alive, everyone thinks it's alive, but in reality it's just a host for Satan now to live as a man and rule the world. Which is Satan's counterfeiting of what the Messiah did when he became incarnate. That kind of extreme demonic behavior, demons mixing with human flesh, is the parallel to what we see in Noah's day. That in Noah's day it was in this unique form of mating with women, In the last days before Christ's second coming, it takes this other unique form. Satan indwelling the body of a human and raising him from the dead. I would also add to this that I believe you can see evidence in our world today of increased demonic activity. Something more like what was going on in the days of Christ's first coming. I believe that we are in an age of epidemic demonic activity in the lives of people though the wisdom of the world doesn't acknowledge it as demonic they don't see such a thing they see it only as medical reasons uh, psychological reasons and of course those things exist as well but i think mixed in you have demonic activity which the human the, the unbelieving world doesn't bother to try to separate out but as believers we can see i think at times the, de- the demons working and then very quickly to end the second of the three ways in which these times are similar, the depravity of men will reach extreme levels in the last days. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, realize in the last days difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, remember, Paul isn't saying that these kinds of sins are unique to the end times. It's not like they were invented in the end times. All of these things have always existed. What he's saying is the last days are different because it becomes increasingly difficult to find anyone who doesn't share in one or more of these behaviors as a rule. The society just gets worse and worse and worse to a point similar to the days of Noah when he can look on the earth and say, you know what, I regret I even have man on the earth. Only a few will find favor. It seems clear to me that we're moving steadily in that direction. And if you don't agree, then you have a far more optimistic outlook on the world than I do. Finally, the last reason, and Jesus gives us this one in the text of Matthew, the third way in which the circumstances of Noah's day mirrors the times of his return, the world will be oblivious and even hostile to the notion of his return. In verse 39 of Matthew's 24th chapter, Jesus says, 
that they didn't understand until the flood came. What did they understand? They didn't understand Noah's warnings. Second Peter 2 says he was a preacher of righteousness. Even as he spent all the time building the boat, he was trying to warn people about why he was building the boat. They didn't care. They didn't listen. They didn't understand God would ever bring any kind of judgment. They certainly didn't understand they were going to be included in that judgment when it came. They were surprised to know any of these things, and they only recognized it as the water was about to hit their face in the flood. I think it's easy to see today exactly that same attitude that Jesus said would be there in the last days. The recent predictions of the rapture that we joked about earlier today by false teachers and and then all their misguided and deceived followers, that's a memorable proof in and of itself. Look what was written about that event recently on the web, on news sites, concerning the prediction. This was written a day or two before yesterday. The prediction is being mocked and has inspired rapture parties to celebrate what hosts expect will be the failure of the world to come to an end. A Facebook page titled Post-Rapture Looting offers this invitation. When everyone is gone and God's not looking, we need to pick up some sweet stereo equipment and maybe some new furniture for the mansion that we're going to squat in. By Wednesday afternoon, 175,000 people indicated they would be attending the public event. In the army town of Fayetteville, North Carolina, the local chapter of the American Humanist Association has turned the event into a two-day extravaganza with a Saturday night party followed by a day after concert. And then it ends on this. The rapture, which is the belief that Christ will bring the faithful into paradise prior to a period of tribulation on earth, is a relatively new notion compared to Christianity itself. Oh, really? I got it from the Bible. I don't know where they're thinking. And it adds, most Christians don't believe in it. Really? And even believers rarely attempt to set a date for the event. Well, because believers know there is no way to set a date for the event. This is what the world is now saying. Now, I want you to know that it's prompted, of course, by the guy that made these bad predictions. But look at what they conclude from what he did. All these predictions, they always come out wrong. They always prove the same thing. There is no end of the world. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. They don't say these guys are wrong. They say the concept is wrong. Jesus said that in the days before his coming, they will not know that it's about to happen. It'll surprise them even as it occurs. I would tell you that the first clue we see in the story of Noah is proof, I believe, among other things I could point to, that we have entered into this undefined period of time called the last days in which we are ever approaching, ever increasingly close to Jesus' return, first the rapture, later his return, and that that event will parallel in many ways what we are about to study in the story of Noah and the flood. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we have the benefit of your counsel and your word. And I thank you, Father, that you have seen fit to provide for those who come with the Spirit's insight. You've given us, Father, the confidence and the assurance to see your plan before it takes place to the degree you've chosen to reveal it. And in seeing it, Father, we grow confident and we grow trusting, for we know you have everything in control. And we aren't worried, we aren't disturbed by a word that comes from outside your Scripture. We are confident and we remain trusting in what we read. But Father, I pray we would put that trust and that confidence to good work, for the days are short and the time and opportunity is ending. And forever, how long we have, Father, in our own physical life or in the world itself, I pray, Father, that you would cause us to think more, uh, more urgently about how we can share the gospel, for how, Father, we might be brave and bold to speak things to people we know who we suspect won't like to hear it. 
But in your grace and by your spirit, we may speak in love in a way that they might hear you speak through us. We ask, Father, for opportunities like that, that the world itself, Father, while it's still here, is still open to the grace that you offer. I pray that you would let us uh, be an instrument to bring that to someone today or this week. Let us feel the urgency that knowing the end is near should bring. And Father, I pray that as well as this church continues to, to bring your light to Austin in this part of the, of, of the city, I ask, Father, that you would give us new ideas, new strength, new, new ways in which we can serve you and reach out to others. Let us not simply be a place that serves itself. Let us be a place, Father, that serves you in any way you call us. And if we do that, Father, I pray this training would have its full and intended effect in our lives in the way it's prepared us for something greater. Thank you for all the service that we've had this morning. Thank you for the talents and the, and the contributions of so many. Send us out of here, Father, today and into this week as your ambassadors, boldly wearing you on our sleeves, so to speak, announcing you to everyone who asks for the hope that is within us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.